Okay, today we'll be looking here in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17. We'll go all the way to verse 30. And of course, this is the passage where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And some of you may be familiar with one of the the all-time greatest paintings, most well-known paintings, was painted by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and it's called The Last Supper. Now, he's not the only one who painted the uh, the, the biblical scene of the Lord's Supper. And, and as you look, by the way, that's that's a replica. <laughs> the, the real one is not in such good shape. But uh, he painted it back in the 15th century, and it, it hasn't held up so well because it was actually painted on a on the wall of a, a church building and, and translated. The name of the church building is called Holy Mary of Grace, and it's in Milan, Italy. And it was done in a in a style that just unfortunately didn't hold up so well. But it is considered one of the world's most famous paintings, and, and various other painters have tried to kind of copy what Leonardo da Vinci did. But it's an interesting painting. It, it portrays the various reactions that were given by the apostles. And Jesus, of course, uh, in, in this passage here, he, he mentions that he's going to be betrayed. And so the various apostles, well, how, how do you try to portray their reactions to Jesus' words? Well, da Vinci tries to do that. And so Jesus is, is there, he's in the, in the upper room, and uh, all the, the disciples were there, and he says someone's going to betray him. Well, all 12 of the apostles have different reactions to that news, and da Vinci tries to portray their various reactions to various degrees. Uh, for the most part, uh, it was... According to Da Vinci, he was trying to get across the anger and, and the shock of Jesus' words. And we know who Da Vinci was was trying to portray in, in the painting because uh, there's, there's, there's actually a notebook written by Leonardo Da Vinci where he, he tells who these various guys are. That's how we know. So from left to right, uh, at least according to the apostles' heads here, here's, here's what we have. And, and it's interesting, Da Vinci puts them in groups of three. So, so going from left to right, we have uh, Bartholomew, James, and Andrew. They're the, the first group of three. And uh, so Da Vinci tried to portray them as being surprised. The next group of three you have in, in the painting there is Judas Iscariot, Peter, and John. So you'll see uh, John was, was the one who's at, at Jesus' right hand. Judas, interestingly enough, uh, he's the one wearing green and blue there. Da Vinci purposely tried to put him in the shadows. He's looking rather withdrawn. He's kind of taken back by this sudden revelation of his plan. He's hoping Jesus doesn't know. He's hoping the other disciples don't know. Interestingly enough, he's clutching a small bag. Uh, some have said perhaps Da Vinci did that to signify that the, the silver uh, given, uh, that was given to him by the chief priests or perhaps some have said maybe it has something to do with his role as the treasurer of the, the band of apostles. Uh, also, he's tipping over a salt container. <laughs> and my understanding of, of that, as people have tried to explain this, is uh, maybe it has something to do, to do with a, uh, an Eastern expression, betray the salt. Uh, betray the salt means to betray one's master. So maybe that's why Da Vinci did that. But then you have Peter. He's looking rather angry. He's holding a knife. And uh, some have said maybe that's, you know, Da Vinci was kind of kind of foreshadowing 
uh, Peter being in the Garden of Eden. Remember when, when the soldiers came, Peter takes out his, his, his mini sword, his knife, and chopped off the ear of, of that guy, that poor guy. Jesus puts his ear back on. But, uh, and then you have John there right next to Jesus, and, and he appears to be fainting. And, of course, Jesus is in the middle. He had that place of honor. So if you if you look at your seating here, Jesus is in that open spot right there where no one's sitting at the moment, right in the middle. Now, of course, uh, one, of the, one of the things is most likely he would have been sitting in a U-shape. Uh, the five disciples on this side, five on the other side. Jesus in the middle. He's at the head of the table. He's, he's the one who's kind of in charge. And then you had uh, the next group of three. You have Thomas. So I remember going left to right. So we have Thomas, James, and Philip. Thomas is clearly upset. Uh, he's, he's the one who's kind of raising, he's raising the finger. He's upset. And James, he's kind of looking stunned. He's got his arms up in the air. Uh, and then Philip appears to be requesting some sort of an explanation. We, you know, like, what? Somebody's going to betray Jesus? And then you got Matthew, Jude, and then there's Simon the Zealot. They're the final group of three, and you have uh, you have Jude and Matthew. They're turned toward Peter. Peter's remember he's the spokesman of the group, and uh, often they would they would look to Peter as kind of well, hey, you're you're kind of like the the spokesman of a group. What's going on here, Peter? What? Somebody's going to betray Jesus? Well, this particular painting, uh, some of you may know, has ended up being uh, turned into much speculation. Let's put it that way, including various authors and writers, uh, historical revisionists have have had fun with this. Um, put quotation marks around fun, but uh, one of the ones that bothers me the most is some have actually identified the person to the left of Jesus. That's from our perspective, anyway. Uh, some have said that's not actually Apostle John. Some have said that's a woman. And I can understand why they might say that, but it is not a woman. Uh, but some have said that was Mary Magdalene. And, of course, that got got used in the movie. If you ever read the book or watched the movie, The Da Vinci Code, uh, Dan Brown wrote a fictional novel. It wasn't intended to be, you know, historical gospel truth by any means. But, uh, unfortunately, some... Some so-called Christians have been had their, had their faith shaken by that particular book and, and the movie. Uh, anyway, I don't want to go into great depth on that, but sadly, uh, Dan Brown was mistaken, and he he got that from somebody else, by the way. But that is not uh, Mary Magdalene; that is John, who is supposedly next to Jesus. So there's there is a lot of controversy and speculation swirling around various events that happened in Jesus' life. And even, even there was debate swirls around the real events. Uh, for example, one of the, the questions that, that some people have is, was Jesus celebrating the Passover? Now that's important because Jesus said he, he came to keep the law. Jesus cared about the law. The Jews cared about the law. Celebrating Passover was a huge deal to the Jews. So remember, Jesus has, has come into to Jerusalem. It could be up to over 2 million people in Jerusalem there to celebrate the Passover. Interestingly enough, in an article called The Last Supper, it was written by Robert Stein, 
he summarized various evidence that was actually in favor of the, of showing that Jesus was there celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples. Let me just share some of these uh, with you. Number one, the, the meal was eaten in Jerusalem. Actually, it, that was a Passover requirement, and that's why we have, you had people come, coming from all over, including Galilee, to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Number two, Jesus and the disciples spent the night in the vicinity of Jerusalem. That also was a requirement. Number three, they were reclined on couches, not as as Da Vinci painted them. They're not sitting at a table, you know, kind of our Western style of of eating. Uh, they they were probably on couches, and so that one of the things that was showing it was a festive occasion. Number four, the meal was eaten after sunset. Again, that wasn't the normal, typical thing that a Jew of Jesus' day would have done, uh, but that's. That was when they were supposed to have the Passover meal. Number five, the meal ended with a hymn. And the Passover meals uh, were supposed to end with hymns. In fact, they, they were supposed to come from the Hallel. Hallel, we get the word hallelujah. Hallel means praise. The Hallel Psalms, by the way, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And then typically, whoever was the head of the home would give an interpretation of the elements. That was a part of the ritual. Usually the head of the home, being the father, uh, would, would explain, why are we doing this? <laughs> right? All this was pointing back to uh, particularly like Exodus chapter 12. Okay, Hopefully you remember Exodus 12. Remember? Children of Israel in Egypt, they're in bondage. Uh, the last of the uh, plagues that God brought to Egypt was was the death angel coming and killing all those who did not have the blood on the doorpost, on the mantle of, of their house. So hopefully all the Israelites would have put that blood, and then the death angel would pass by them. So the blood was what they needed. Life is in the blood. All, again, is pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the Passover lamb. And so it was that last plague that God used set his people free from Egypt, and so his people have celebrated Passover ever since then. It was also custom to give money to the poor. So if you keep that in mind, you'll see all of these various elements in the, the real event that we see in the Bible. And by the way, let me encourage you to read the other gospel accounts. You'll, you'll pick up little things here and there that are a little different from Matthew's accounts. So as we look at our text today, here's what I here's the main idea, the the theme that I want you to get away go away with, and uh, and I want you to see it in the text. It's not not hopefully not my idea. It's God's idea. But here here's what I want you to to see in the text today: that King Jesus is sovereign. King Jesus is sovereign, and by sovereign, I hope you understand it's the idea. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control. Uh, again, the chief priests and Judas and others, they're thinking they're in control. No, they're not. Not really. <laughs> Jesus is the one who is in control. He's the one who's sovereign. And, and all these things are working out according to God's plan. So let's, let's look at our text and see that here. First of all, we, we'll see in verses 17 through 19 that Jesus' sovereignty is seen as, as in, in the preparation for the Lord's Supper or the, the communion, this last Passover meal. So look at verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17 says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, 
the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, that's Jesus speaking here, He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. In verse 17, the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? I mean, this is, this is Passover time. Uh, Jews in Jerusalem are supposed to have this, this special Passover meal together. It was a big deal for the Jews. And so they're asking Jesus, you know, they're, they're looking to him. He's the one who's in charge here. And so Jesus gives them directions. It's interesting, if you just think about the directions here for a moment, uh, Jesus is clearly showing his sovereignty. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control. Now, now some have said that, that this was a prearranged thing. I don't know. Scripture doesn't really say whether it was prearranged or not. It doesn't really matter. Either way, Jesus is in charge. He's, he's saying, hey, guys, you go to this place. And it's interesting uh, what Jesus says. And when you compare it to Luke's gospel, did, did you notice when we read Luke's gospel, Jesus said, you're, you're going to find, number one, this is interesting, you're going to find a man. Well, that was unusual. And Jesus says, not only will you find a man, you're going to find a man carrying a jar. So when you combine both those things together, that was very unusual. Very unusual. Okay, because typically it was... Some of you are going to think this is kind of a male chauvinist thing. It's not. But during that time period, it was, it was the women who would go and get the, you know, they carried the water jars and get the water. So this was, this was an unusual thing. So uh, obviously, it's probably the only man out there carrying a water jar was, was, was this guy. So it probably wasn't very hard to find. So Jesus is saying, you go into Jerusalem. I mean, there are people everywhere, okay? How are you going to find this one guy? Because Jesus doesn't name him. So again, we see Jesus' sovereignty involved here. Okay, I know. I've already, this, there's a guy there. I know who he is. You don't know who he is, but I know. Go find him. He'll be carrying a water jar. That's the man. So it's really cool how you, you see Jesus' sovereignty and control in the midst of this. So, you, so he's telling these guys, go into the city. There is a certain man. You don't need to know his name. I will direct you. So, they, Jesus, you see Jesus intending to, he, he, he's fulfilling the law. He's not trying to de- destroy the law. He's the one who fulfills the law. We're going to keep the Passover together. And so Jesus is going to use this time to, to institute in this new covenant, uh, uh, the institution for the church, this, this new uh, ordinance for the church, which we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we see in verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they go and they prepare. And one of those things they needed to do, by the way, in, pre- in preparation for Passover was these two guys, whoever they might be, had to get a lamb. And so they had to go meet with all the who knows how many other hundreds of thousands of people were on the Temple Mount. Okay, because there was this, this set time when the lambs were to be, would be slaughtered. And so... Most likely, uh, Peter and John would have been sent to do this very important task in preparation for the Passover meal. So Jesus sends them, get the lamb, take it. It's to be slaughtered there at the Temple Mount. 
part of the blood was to be sprinkled by the altar, and then they, they were to bring the lamb back, and that was to be used in the Passover meal. Jesus' words are interesting when you, when you just, just take a look and meditate upon this. In verse 18, Jesus says, My time is at hand. Just even in that, that phrase there, you can see Jesus' sovereignty. His, he's in control of the situation. He knows, he knows what's going on, doesn't he? My time is at hand. He's talked a lot about it. At least three times he's predicted. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to die. And I will rise again. He knows what's going on. My time is at hand. That, that's, by the way, a reference. He's referring to some decisive moment here in salvation history that God has appointed for his sacrificial death. He knows he is the Passover lamb. And he's, he's coming accomplishing his father's will. Well, let's move on. Verse 20, we, we see Jesus' sovereignty is seen here, starting verse 20. He, he's going to predict his betrayer. He knows who his betrayer is, and he predicts it. Look at verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So if it's Peter and John, they've come back with the lamb. They're there in the upper room. Verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus knows who it is. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So Jesus gives his prediction there in verses 20 and 21. Notice he doesn't mention Judas' name out loud to everybody else. So the Passover meal, you need to understand a few things. Uh, we've already hinted at some of this, but it was eaten after sunset, and that's why the Bible's mentioning it's in the evening. Uh, it had to be eaten in Jerusalem, so Jesus is he's fulfilling the law. And so since the Jews followed uh, typically followed the Roman pattern for feast, they're most likely reclined on couches that were in a U-shape of some sort, and so they, they were probably resting on their left elbows, sorry, the left elbows, uh, they would have had, their, their, therefore, their right hand free to take from the table and eat. One author has given a very helpful timeline of a typical Passover meal. So let me share this with you so you can uh, kind of help you understand what was probably going on during this event. Number one, uh, the particular festival here would have been blessed by Jesus, and they, they would have had juice, and Jesus blessed the juice. Uh, so there was there was several cups, and so the first cup would have been blessed along with the festival. And then some food would have been brought in. Interestingly enough, the food included uh, unleavened bread. So again, that's imagery going back to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, they would have had that unleavened bread as they would have been coming out of Egypt. Uh, the other thing that Jews did is they had bitter herbs, they had greens, they had stewed fruit, and some roast lamb bitter herbs. You know, these are all things, imagery, 
that they would have had to help them remember those horrible times in Egypt as they were in slavery and bondage. Number three, uh, then typically if you were in a Jewish household, the son would ask the father why this particular night would be distinguished from other nights. Why is this an important night? And so the family head would answer and, and would tell about the Exodus story. And that would be followed by praise to God for the, the past and the future redemption. And then they would sing part of the Hallel Psalms, probably Psalm 113, 14, and 115. And then they would have the second cup of juice. They would drink that together. And then they would have the unleavened bread, and that would have been blessed and broken and been distributed. And that's why you have Jesus, we see Jesus doing that very thing. He's doing what a typical Jewish family would do. He's, he's breaking the bread and distributing it to his disciples. That would have been eaten with the, the, uh, the bitter herbs and the fruit. And then the father would explain the meaning of the bread. And then that would be followed by the meal proper. And they would, then they would eat uh, the, the lamb. And at the consummation of the meal, the, uh, the head of the table, whoever that was, would bless the third cup, and then that would be followed by uh, singing the, the last part of the Hallel Psalms, which was Psalm 116, 17, and 118. And then they ended with the fourth cup. So <laughs> there's a lot going on. Maybe sometime for, uh, I've considered maybe Easter we could kind of do this. The, the, the Jews typically call it the setter, the setter. Maybe we could do that sometime for Easter. And so that's kind of what was going on here. So Jesus is kind of following that Jewish pattern. But we see Jesus interacting with his disciples. It's an interesting interaction. We also see him interacting with Judas. Of course, Judas is there for, uh, for most of this time. And one of the things I just want to highlight for you in verse 25, in contrast to the other disciples, did you notice the other disciples actually called Jesus Lord? Did you notice that? Is it I, Lord? Judas does not call Jesus Lord. Lord means master. He calls him, did you notice? Have a look at your Bible. What does he call him? Rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Just kind of a generic word for teacher. And as far as I know, I've had a look. Nowhere in, in, in Scripture is it recorded that Judas ever called Jesus Lord. So again, you get to see Judas's heart through his words. It is out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks, after all. So Judas is hoping that Jesus is not aware of his betrayal. He, of course, he doesn't want him to know. Uh, he wants this to be a surprise. But Jesus, Jesus' response makes it clear that Jesus knows. He's in control. He's sovereign of the whole situation here. He knows. Interestingly enough, Jesus' response is very vague. It is vague enough that did you notice none of the other disciples kind of catch on that Judas is the one? Even when Jesus sends him out of the room, they, they still don't catch on that it's Judas. Because remember, one of the typical customs of the day was at Passover time, you go give money to the poor. He's the treasurer. So I'm assuming what the other disciples were thinking, Judas is going off to give money to the poor. So even now, they still, they, they still don't get that, that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. 
And then we see, uh, it's interesting enough, Judas goes out of the room and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So even in this, we see Jesus' sovereignty. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control. He's the head of the church, after all. He can do what he likes. So his sovereignty is seen as he's instituting here this ordinance for the church, what we call the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So first of all, Jesus gives this uh, this bread thing in verse 26, where he says, Take, eat, this is my body. Unfortunately, this particular passage has caused some controversy in our world over the centuries. So let's just think about this for a moment. Now, now remember, it, it was at this time during the Passover meal that the head of the family would typically sit up, because they're probably reclining, so he'd sit up from his reclining position. He would bless the bread, break it piece by piece, and then he would pass it out to whoever was there in the room. So this was normally done in silence. But interestingly enough, Jesus here, he's kind of, as he would often do, breaking custom. He's not breaking the Bible, <laughs> not breaking Scripture, but he's going against custom here. He's, he's interpreting it. In uh, in light of his impending death here, isn't he? Take, eat. This is my body, he says. So Jesus' first words of institution are interpreting here the meaning of the bread. Now that is important for us to understand because it really gives relevance, particularly to us as Gentiles. He's giving relevance here. What what is this bread? It's it's symbolizing something. It's not literally his body, which some have had have interpreted this to be. Now, the symbolism of the original elements represented Israel's departure or redemption from Egypt. That's what it originally was pointing to. So when they had the Passover meal, it was, remember, it's going back to Exodus. But now Jesus is clearly identifying the bread here, not with the Exodus, but what? He's identifying it with him, with him, with himself. It's participation in particularly his death, his sacrifice. Now, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, they're sharing in Jesus' death in order to receive its benefits. Uh, Some have called this a wonderful means of grace. Uh, Now, did you notice, by the way, that Jesus commanded them to eat? Uh, In the Greek language, that's a command. Take, eat, two commands, in fact. Now, why? What is he wanting them to do? He's wanting them to have an active participation in his death. He's wanting them to participate in his death. And by the way, we get to do that. Every time we have Lord's Supper and communion together, we, get, we have this active participation in his death. We get to do this, as Scripture says, until he comes. Now, have you ever wondered why there, there's, there's a lot of debate? And, and it has been 
especially going back to Reformation time period, and even before then, debates over the Catholic view and, the, and even the, uh, the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther uh, didn't agree with the, uh, the Catholic uh, theology behind this. The Catholics, you probably know, believe the bread actually becomes Jesus' body. And so as the priest is standing up there giving his, uh, you know, his, his blessing, supposedly the bread actually turns into Jesus' body. Martin Luther didn't believe that. Zwingli didn't believe that. Reformers didn't believe that. And so Protestants, uh, that was one of the differences the Protestants have with the Catholics. But why is there this controversy? Uh, you, you might look at the passage here and say, I mean, doesn't Jesus say? I mean, look what he says. He says, take, eat, this is my body. So, Let's be gracious a little bit here. You might understand why someone might come to that conclusion, right? So what does Jesus mean? Well, a lot of the controversy is over that word is. Little little word, just one little verb, is. And that's where the debate really lies there in verse 26. And so the, the, the Lutherans and Protestants believe that the bread was was representing something spiritual. It wasn't physically Jesus' body. And so... What's going on here? Well, the Catholics, they, they, what they end up doing is they read too much into that word. The word is. The word is, by the way, can mean represents, but sometimes it also means equals. So just think about that for a moment. Everyone's okay. So, it, it, you know, it, so if Jesus is saying in verse 26 then, take, eat, this equals my body, you can see how you might get to that kind of the theology but if Jesus is then saying, now wait a minute, take, eat, this represents my body, then of course it can't be his body, can it? So if the word is can mean both of those, then how do we know which one it is? Well, again, often the context will kind of clear up the, the fogginess for us, and uh, hopefully the, the, the context is pretty clear there that uh, this is not literally Jesus' body. It's Jesus is saying, hey, this represents my body. And so one way is, of course, by the context. The context is showing us there that a figurative meaning needs to be used. So after giving the, the bread saying, then Jesus gives his cup saying, starting in verse 27, and he says to, to drink all of it, all of you. So he gives thanks for this. He's wanting them all to participate. Now remember, Judas is not in the room here. Clearly Judas was an unbeliever. We read earlier from Luke's gospel that Satan entered into Judas. Of course, believers cannot have Satan enter into them because they have the Holy Spirit. So this cup saying was most likely part of of step number seven. The cup blessing, the the entire meal taking place between the, the two sayings here. So typically in a Passover meal, everyone had their own cup. But it's interesting, Jesus is, is having one cup here, and he's sharing it around the room. So again, he's kind of breaking custom a little. Now, why would he be doing that? We, again, I think he's, some commentators, and I, and I agree with them, would say that Jesus is emphasizing community. Particularly, he wants them to be unified. And you read John's Gospel, Jesus goes into this very long uh, teaching. Uh, particularly chapters 15 through 17, one of the things he's constantly emphasizing there is unity, oneness. 
So the, he wants this community and unity. And so while we don't drink the same cup, for many good reasons, when we, when we do drink cups, plural, together, hopefully you need to think community. Community and unity. We're, we need to be emphasizing that. So that's why every believer needs to be participating in this ordinance. But notice Jesus says, he uses that interesting phrase there, this is my blood. So again, that's kind of a parallel to the, the bread saying where Jesus says, this is my body, but now he's saying, this is my blood. So again, we, we take that figuratively, spiritually, he's, this is representing my blood. The juice is not literally his blood, but it's representing. So these phrases have the same basic meaning. Jesus is saying the juice represents his blood. It's going to be shed on the cross. It's looking forward again to Jesus' death, and we get to participate in that. The phrase, there's another interesting phrase there, blood of the covenant. That's, a, that's an allusion back to Exodus chapter 24, where the covenant was sealed. It, again, get the Old Testament imagery here. Covenant would have been sealed where where the lamb would be slain, blood would be poured on the altar, half of the blood would be sprinkled on the people. Remember, the priests were supposed to... Kind of disgusting, I know, right? I won't do it to you, don't worry. But imagine just... If, let's say I had a, a, you know, a, a piece of a leaf or something. And imagine me dipping it into blood and just throwing it on you, sprinkling it on you. Kind of disgusting, isn't it? But that's, that's typically what they would have done in Exodus 24. So what's Jesus doing here? He's inaugurating a new covenant. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God, because the old covenant is kind of disgusting. It's meant to be disgusting. Death isn't pretty. Remember death? Where does that come from? There was no death in the beginning. You know that, don't you? Read Genesis 1, verse 31. God made everything very good. There was no death. Genesis 3, we have the fall, and now death comes into the world through sin. And so Adam brings sin into the world, and according to Romans, we need the second Adam to deal with that sin then, don't we? And so the second Adam, who is Jesus, he comes, he lives the perfect life which you could never live, and dies the perfect death which you, of course, could never do. And it's his blood, that once-for-all sacrifice that was needed and accomplished. So he's inaugurating this new covenant, and notice it's in his blood, his blood's poured out for it. Notice again what Scripture says. What, what's the purpose for this? Why was his blood shed? It's for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Scripture says. So what's the point? What's the point? Jesus is saying that the real significance of the Passover then is seen as fulfilled in his blood and death. Right? Blood had to be shed. Jesus willingly gives up his life. And so the poured out blood in the Old Testament was sacrificial language that was uh, looking at the atonement. Atonement is a cool word. If you break it up into little pieces, think of it at one minute. At one minute. So in an atonement, you who are an enemy of God can become at one with God. You are reconciled to God. That's what the atonement literally means. Jesus accomplished that. And so all those lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Covenant, oh, they didn't really deal with the sin fully once and for all. And that's why they had to keep doing them every year 
high priest had to go in on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. Blood had to be shed. So through the sacrifice that was poured out at the altar, the sins of the people were being covered over. Looking forward to Jesus' blood. What's the purpose and the result of Jesus' atoning death? Well, in verse 28, look at that. Jesus says there, specifically, it's for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, that's good news. Because what's your greatest problem is your sin, right? I hope you believe that. Your greatest problem is your sin. You need an atonement. God is the only one who could accomplish that. Jesus' statement in verse 29 is also very interesting. And Jesus is concluding the Passover meal uh, with that fourth cup there. Now, what is he saying? You look at that. He's making a statement about the future. Very interesting. Very interesting. He says, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, this, this, this grape juice, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wow. There's great significance in that little statement that he makes. He's talking about the future. The emphasis is, is not on some vow of abstinence, like some have said, but it's, it's actually Bible prophecy he's giving here. He's talking about the, the imminent coming of his kingdom. I'm not going to have this, this Lord's Supper, this Passover meal with you until that day. Of course, when Jesus says, I will not drink any longer, what is he doing here? He's acknowledging my imminent death. He's saying my death is coming. I'm accomplishing my Father's will. So when he says, drink it new, he's anticipating a coming banquet meal. Bible Revelation talks about a coming banquet meal. In fact, you can read it in Revelation chapter 19. There's a banquet meal that Jesus is going to share with believers. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to have this until then. I I don't know about you, but I find that really cool that uh, Jesus, again, shows his sovereignty, his control here. He knows the future. He He knows what's going to happen in the future. Well, then in verse 13, we see Jesus departing to meet his destiny. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows who Judas is going to meet him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows exactly what's happening. So in verse 30, it says, They sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. This hymn, by the way, should be seen as the concluding part of the meal. That was typically what Jews did. So most likely they're singing that last part of the Halal Psalms, Psalm 116 to 118. That's that was their Jewish hymn book. So that's what's going on, but how can we apply this? Well, number one, worship Jesus Christ as you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay? Let's not forget what is this all about? All right? I know that kind of sounds simple, but how often do we sit here and not really meditate on Jesus and what Jesus has done? I can't tell you how many, probably hundreds of times, especially when I was growing up. It just did, for whatever reason, my mind was not on the real significance of what was going on. I wasn't worshiping Jesus Christ. So we've got to remember this celebration is not about you. It's certainly not about getting a drink and filling our stomachs. That's certainly not what it's about. Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians 11. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the Passover lamb. He's the one who's given his sacrificial death for the atonement of our sins. Don't forget that. Worship him. 
Think about Him. Meditate upon Him. So in the process here, Jesus is inaugurating this new covenant, this ordinance for this church. It's for Christians. And He's literally saying, Hey, I, I, I am becoming your high priest. I am the high priest that you need. Now all believers are able to celebrate the Lord's Supper until King Jesus returns. Um, this next point, I, I'm just kind of gaining from some other people, but I think this is pretty cool. Stay with me here, okay? Sometimes we, we kind of turn things into just religious exercises, and, and uh, sadly they, become, they can become meaningless. So my exhortation to you is don't let the Lord's Supper just become some, another religious exercise. But you can use it as a kind of a plan for your life. Now, uh, stick with me here, and, and hopefully this will make sense, all right? One commentator by the name of Michael Wilkins said you can use the Lord's Supper as this plan for your life in six different ways, all right? So number one, you can, you can look back, look forward, inward, upward, around, and outward, all right? So let me elaborate. I'll, I'll take his little outline here and elaborate on this, okay? Uh, I think this is what he's trying to communicate. So number one, you can use the Lord's Supper to look backwards. Look backwards. So whenever you come to the Lord's table together during communion, look backwards. In fact, Jesus even tells us to do that, doesn't he? So the Lord's Supper is pointing to Jesus' accomplishment of salvation for us. He says, remember. He finished the work he was sent to do, but it's also looking back to to the, the history that, that really prompted this, the, this whole Passover meal. And so by looking back, we are prompted to rest in the finished work of salvation. We, we can give thanks to Jesus. So what is this? It's, it's a memorial. It's a celebration of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of Jesus' sacrifice. And so the Lord's Supper is a powerful reminder of the historical foundation of our faith. It is grounded and rooted in the Old Testament. So look backward. Number two, look forward. You look backward and look forward. So the Lord's Supper looks forward to the time when Christians are going to enjoy something in the future. The consummation of the kingdom, which Jesus talks about here. We can enjoy fellowship with Jesus. We'll be able to be there at that banquet in heaven with Jesus and all the other believers and the saints from all the ages, together with Jesus, drinking and eating with Jesus in pure fellowship. If that doesn't get you excited, your exciter is broken, my friends. Okay, Just think about that. No sin, no sorrow, no more death. You're there with Jesus. And Christians can look forward to each new day then with conviction that, you know what? My future, your future, if you're a believer, is secure, totally secure. Secure with Jesus. It doesn't matter if we live or we die, we're in Jesus Christ. So we, we look forward to a time when Jesus is going to come again. So remember, Jesus talked about that. You, we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What did He say? Until He comes. So we look forward to that day when He comes and will reward those who are longing and looking for His return. Number three, look inward. Okay, Look inward. Celebration of, of the Lord's Supper or communion is, 
is a time, it's, it's an important time, where you can have some self-examination. Scripture says to do that. It's a healthy thing. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that those who are living in blatant, unrepentant sin, when, when they're coming and approaching the Lord's table, they're actually guilty. You can be guilty of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. You're, you're disregarding His sacrifice. You're, it's, it's like you're spitting in Jesus' face, saying, Ah, oh, that sacrifice, <laughs> that's nothing. So communion times can be very important occasions where we're, we're looking at our hearts, we're looking at our lives, we're, we're looking at ourselves, holding ourselves accountable before God. He's the one who sees your heart. And so the original Lord's Supper should be warning enough for us since it comes in the context of, what's the context? Well, it's betrayal, it's denial. It's a sober reminder that you and I need to take heed lest we fall. Because you don't want to be a Judas, do you? We're going to read later on. Peter, Peter says, hey, Christ, I'm not going to deny you, but what does he go and do? He goes and denies Jesus. So we need to take heed lest we fall. Number four, look upward. Look upward. Use the Lord's Supper. Use this time as celebration to look upward. The Lord, Lord's Supper is, should, should be an upward look. I don't know how else to say it. So we remember what? Jesus' death on the cross, His burial in the tomb, His resurrection, because His death wasn't the end, was it, my friends? It was the beginning. And so His re- resurrection then is showing something very important. Don't forget this. It's showing that God accepted His Son's sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He arose, conquering death, paying the penalty for sin. So we look up with conviction and joy, knowing then God accepted His Son's sacrifice. He is our Savior, and, and, and because of that, you and I get to live as well, physically as well as spiritually. Number five, look around. Look around. Communion is a time to emphasize the corporate nature of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is emphasizing that here. John's account of this event, by the way, includes a, a story where Jesus... Hopefully you remember this story. You remember Jesus girds himself. He, he kind of takes that position of a slave. Uh, slaves were the ones who would come and wash dirty, nasty, smelly feet. Right? Notice none of the other disciples did that because that's the position of a slave. What does Jesus do? He takes the position of a slave. He gets down on his hands and knees and washes their dirty, smelly feet. That's kind of cool. Jesus humbles himself. And so John's accounts, including that particular event. And so he was teaching them to serve each other. Do as I do unto you, he says. And so the day's going to later find Peter. What is he doing? He's boastfully declaring, oh, Jesus, I'd never deny you. Yeah, right. What does he do? He denies Jesus. And so that kind of pride is really a sure formula for failure. It's a sure formula for failure. Uh, let me exhort you, <laughs> don't be prideful like that. Okay, Saying, I never will do something, it's better to say, Lord willing, right? Lord willing, I won't do that. And so without community, we're going to fail. And Jesus' disciples needed each other, just as you and I need each other. So communion is a time to renew our service to each other. Last of all, 
Number six, look outward. Look outward. Use, use the Lord's table time to, to look outward. So remember, there, there's corporate nature involved in this. But it's also pointing to the outward dimension of the Lord's Supper. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until He comes. <clears throat> so my friend, here is, here's reality, okay? Here's reality. The world is dying. That shouldn't be a surprise to you, but if they die without Jesus Christ, without knowing Jesus Christ, they don't have the message of the good news. They don't know Jesus. And so what is the good news, you say? Well, the good news is literally it's Jesus has provided salvation from sins, and according to the Bible, he did that through his death. And so you must renew your commitment to that message, my friends. Renew your commitment to that message. The good news is good news only to those who believe they're lost, those who believe they're sinners. Otherwise, it's uh, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to unbelievers, isn't it? And so as Paul says in Romans 1, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? What do he say? Why? Why not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to how many? To all those who believe all those who believe it's the power of god unto salvation so may god give us the grace to believe that king jesus really is sovereign over all things including evil things the most evil things like the murder of jesus christ may god help us to believe that and live like he is sovereign